Hello, everyone, and welcome to Special Ed Rising, No Parent Left Behind. I'm your host, Mark Ingracia, and I have been an active member in the field of special education for 35 years as a classroom teacher, tutor, parent trainer, consultant, and advocate. Thank you so much for joining me. This is a podcast for parents and caregivers of children along the spectrum of disabilities as an information hub and promoter for the advancement of people with disabilities in all areas of life. So if you're interested in learning about topics from the world of exceptional needs, educational services, health and wellness, fitness, nutrition for you and your child, and more, this is the place for you. If you like the show, please subscribe, like, comment, and tell your friends about it. And for some extra help to inform your journey, visit the resource page of my website at specialedrising.com. I'd love to feature your success stories on the show, so if you'd like to contribute, please send them to my email so we can show the world what's possible. In this episode, I'm excited to be speaking with Wendy Taylor, Executive Director of Learning Essentials, a company dedicated to providing tutoring, academic coaching, educational therapy, and support services to help students, families, and educators in the greater D.C. metro area and beyond. Wendy Taylor is a highly qualified and dedicated professional in special education. She holds certifications as an educational therapist, Orton-Gillingham practitioner, educational diagnostician, and IEP coach, showcasing her commitment to improving the learning experiences of students with diverse needs. Wendy is also the host of the Special Ed Strategist podcast, where she empowers parents and professionals to navigate the complex world of special education. With extensive experience working with students of various ages and abilities, Wendy has served as a faculty member at St. Petersburg College, supervised pre-service teachers, and worked as a teacher within the Montgomery County Public School System. Wendy holds a Master of Education in Special Education from George Mason University. She's a trusted advocate and a valuable resource for anyone seeking excellence in special education. And trust me when I say she knows her stuff. Wendy was a presenter at the WEG Diamonds in the Rough conference this past October. And if you're interested, you can still access the presentations at wegadvocacy.com backslash diamonds dash pricing. I'll add the link to my resource page. Now, won't you please join me in welcoming Wendy Taylor to the podcast for another win. Hello, Wendy. How are you? Welcome. Hello, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat today. Me too. It's such a pleasure to have you here. One thing I've always wanted to do is start the program with just kind of an out of the ordinary kind of question. Let's do it. People to get to know you a little bit better. So maybe something that people don't necessarily know about you um, that's unrelated to your profession that might be of interest. Yeah. So a couple things. Um, I played rugby in college. Women's rugby. So that is something people don't know about. And that's usually the reaction I get. Um, So yeah, and that was super fun. Um, I survived no broken bones. So that was great. And um, just a really good community, fun community and a good way to just meet people in college. And I had zero understanding of rugby until I went for the first day. (laughs) (laughs) you just threw yourself into it just like probably with your profession right (laughs) yeah 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 exactly and the other little known thing is I used to be a therapeutic horseback riding instructor um, which is super cool as well um, in Morven Park which is in Leesburg Virginia and that was um, a really fun way to support a community that I worked with I taught with but then also I found it really obviously super rewarding, but it was a gift to parents because it gave them this like half half hour of respite 
Um, and I really, I was not a parent at that time. So I don't think I fully appreciated it until now being a parent that you, it's valuable to have, you know, there was a dad that always go on a run every time and it was just his time to have, you know, think to himself and all that good stuff. So there are two things you asked for one, but there are two. No, but they're two wonderful things. And the rugby is pretty awesome. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> impressive. I mean, when we talk about how you started your career, I think it might come into play as something that toughened you up to be able to manage what you had that's to right. do and confront. But um, as far as the respite goes, you know, that's always one of the first things I look for with parents when I speak with them is what kind of time are you trying to find? Can you find for yourself? And I think that's the as as important as, as knowing how to manage and, and offer your child the best education and the best uh, developmental opportunities possible. Because if the parents aren't in a good position themselves, uh, it makes it really difficult, as you know, as a parent. And we can talk about that some more. And for me, I'm not a parent, but I did discover once I left the classroom and went into families' homes, it was way more you know, real for me, you know, you get to actually get to see what these parents did on a, on a daily basis and the importance of respite. Thank you for sharing that. That, That's awesome. So maybe since I kind of like teased a little bit about your background already, maybe you could fill in (laughs) the gaps for people and let everyone know. Yeah. Yeah. Some of your history. So I went to school. Uh, my undergrad is actually in regular ed, and I never taught a day of regular ed in my life. Um, my first teaching position was um, as a self-contained, emotionally disturbed juvenile delinquent position in high school. And I really loved it. I loved that no two days were the same. I loved that I could make this connection and consistency for kiddos that may not necessarily have that in their lives. And then I went ahead and pursued my master's in special education. I am a mom. I have three boys myself. My middle son was diagnosed when he was five with brain cancer. And so we spent 40 days in the hospital. And he really, um, it was eye-opening to me because as we transitioned him to kindergarten, I had sat on that IEP table as a special educator, as a support person, but never as a parent. And I remember just feeling very overwhelmed, very nervous. Um, And if you've walked into an IEP meeting as a parent, you walk in like a party and then the music stops and everybody looks at you. So it's a very kind of this uncertain, uncomfortable position. And I, as a educator, was like, oh my gosh, I feel this way as a parent and I have this immense background and training. I know what the paperwork looks like. I know the process. I know what's going to happen and take place. It was very second nature for me. But then as a parent, you're coming from this place of fear and love. And it was this moment of, I need to serve families so that it cannot, so it doesn't have to be this hard. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so learning essentials had started prior to all of this. Um, So Learning Essentials is our company, my company that focuses on family support, bridging learning gaps, and helping families access special education services. It's been around for 18 years, but when this happened to my son, which is 10 years, it's uh, this year marked our 10-year anniversary, and he's doing great. But through this process, over these 10 years, it really has become a beacon, like a, a passion for me to help parents, again, bridge those learning gaps and access special education service. Because when your baby, whatever that looks like for you in your home is struggling, it is hard to, again, 
remove that fear and love and come to a table and ask the hard questions and navigate a system that is a different language. Mm -hmm. Um, If you've never been in special education, it's a different language. And so really helping parents guide them through that so that Mm -hmm. I kind of back to that respite so they can take a moment to breathe, knowing that their baby is getting the support that they deserve. How did that change for you? You had eight years with Learning Essentials prior to your experience. What changed in your approach necessarily? Anything specific that changed in your approach to dealing with the parents through the process? I think I've always had that, you know, internal monitor of supporting and helping and serving. And then kind of over the time, I heard about this thing called educational therapy. And as I learned more about what educational therapy was, I realized I was actually doing that. So I went ahead and I pursued to be a certified educational therapist. So here in the state of Maryland, there's I'm one of very few. It's um, more common on the West Coast, hearing that term, um, it just is slowly making its way mm-hmm. to the East Coast. Okay. Can you explain what an educational therapist does? Yeah. So if you're thinking about that individualized, systematic instruction that's targeting weakness and processing memory and attention, um, oral language, written language, literacy, and math. So it sounds very complex. But it's not. It's really, again, basic of looking at where the impacts, the gaps and the gains are for a student and using a strategic research sound approach to support them. Um, So it's that individualized interventions for students that may result, whether they're from a neurological, a cognitive, developmental, language, emotional. And so working with students that are impacted with those academic components, whether it's reading, language processing, math, executive function, um, students identified with autism, ADHD, dyslexia. And we use this eclectic kind of intervention model where we take a varied approach and techniques that are um, particular to that student multi-sensory technology, and then also taking a diagnostic look, right? Because we know that data is going to drive where we support a student. So when a student comes to us, we start with a diagnostic approach, an assessment to create an educational profile, whether they've had neuropsych testing done or not, so that we really understand um, kind of where these breakdowns occur and then create some goals to improve the overall learning outcomes. Um, And then also thinking ahead to future education, employments, and independence. And so really also being that quarterback. So you're using, starting with this diagnostic assessment, looking at how we're going to strategically bridge those learning gaps, but then also coordinating and collaborating with other folks that are on that student's team, whether that's the classroom teacher, an outside professional, like an OT, a PT, something of that nature, and then um, helping parents facilitate that IEP process through IEP coaching. Okay. Yeah, that was my question. Do you, how do you connect with the people, the rest of the team, the people that are involved on the other side? And so you do, you work closely with the school's team. Yes, right. So you work with anybody that's on that student's team um, Mm -hmm. and where the family feels comfortable, obviously, that if they want to pull you in, um, you know, some families choose to pull us in on a greater scale and some not so much. And I think Mm -hmm. where the difference lies um, is that people think about 
coaching, tutoring, educational therapy. And if I could just spend a minute just educating kind of the difference between those two. Please, yes. Yeah. So if you're thinking about coaching, um, academic coaching, you're thinking of that similar approach to like a sports or an academic coach. They tend to work on strategies to help kids succeed, Um, whether it's more organization, supporting schoolwork and home. And it may focus on strategies with motivation. And you think about tutoring, you're looking at building concrete skills and helping that student with the immediate need of their schoolwork. So whether it's immediate math need or social studies need. And then educational therapy kind of pulls this all together, right? So you're working on those academic skills, but you're also helping to develop critical thinking um, and key skills that you're going to need for lifelong learning, and then developing those intervention plans and using assessments to track progress and adjust plans as needed. And then kind of working again on adding in that Well, as you're building those skills for that student, you're going to see an increase in self-esteem, confidence, motivation, and teaching them how to self-advocate because we're not going to be in their their back pocket, right, for the Mm -hmm. rest of their life. So our goal is to teach a student those skills in their capacity that they can then independently employ on their own. And so with the IEP process, then, are you kind of intimately involved in the development of the IEP then with the team, or do they kind of create it and then consult with you afterwards? How does that function? A little bit of all of that, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's um, kind of <clears throat> helping parents understand what I like to call the four E's, right? If they're looking to get an IEP, educating them on the process, mm-hmm. educating them on how to create their own evidence of why there's an impact for this student. And again, some schools may say an academic impact, and I always love to remind families that special education is more than academics. It's an educational impact from bell to bell. Mm -hmm. So looking at transitions, playtime, specials, lunchtime, anything from bus to bus, bell to bell, and -hmm. looking at um, that. that cognitive processing, memory, and attention, of course, your academics, but also social and emotional physical, sensory, function, communication, all of those um, go a part of that evidence collecting that I um, educate parents on. And then walking them through that evaluation process and then talking about what eligibility looks like. So Mm -hmm. if then a parent comes to me and they already have an active IEP, really helping them the same, talking about their parent input statement, which is super powerful for parents that they don't necessarily know what to do or how to do and really thinking about where do you see your kid in six months? Where do you see your kid in a year, two years, three years, and even five years, which is hard when you have a little one in elementary school. But if we keep that cycle in mind when you're writing that parent input statement, by the time you get to high school, remember parents, you're the consistent person at that IEP table, right? And so teachers are going to change, schools may change, whatever, but you're going to be consistent. That parent input statement is also consistent on the IEP. So it's a really great way for you to document Mm -hmm. your concerns, the strengths, and then start talking about resources. If you have a student that's going to need resources post-secondary, you've already had these conversations with the school. It's documented in the IEP. And that way, if you need to get on a wait list for something, it happens sooner rather than later that you're not just, you know, mid-year, senior year, thinking what what is next. So really thinking that um, how powerful that 
parent input statement can be. And then to your point about goals and, and everything within the IEP, we do it one or two ways, right? So a parent may just come to me and say, hey, this is the IEP that I'm given. And we'll, and I'll really take this overview of the student, again, thinking of that educational impact and really looking at where is it and what can those SMART goals look like? Or we'll, uh, you know, give proposed goals to the team ahead of time. So it really is coaching that parent on what that means, what it looks like, asking questions, helping them flush through it. And oftentimes they're able to go independently to that IEP meeting because they feel very empowered. Mm -hmm. And then if they have a question, sometimes I've had parents will just text me on the side. I do attend meetings, but oftentimes Mm -hmm. my goal is to empower the parents and have them ready for success so that they have all the information um, going into that meeting. And referring back a little bit with the creation of the IEP itself is the, the idea behind it is a scaffolding, right, towards transition yeah. out of out of secondary school. So it makes so much sense that the parents' input from the start is critical and right. that we're following a path, even though we know children change, we know the light goes on sometimes five years later, you know, after you've had them at three years old and all of a sudden at eight, all of a sudden the light goes on and maybe you change course a little bit, but everything's been building towards that ultimate sec post-secondary life. And I find that a lot of parents are that I've met are kind of in the dark, even during the secondary years, because things haven't kind of started rolling already for them and they don't necessarily know where to go. And so what strikes me as almost criminal is what you do seems to be something that should be mandatory <laughs> for, you know, for every, every school to provide, or, you know, every, every state to provide parents uh, of, of children with special needs, because there's so much that they don't know. And there's so much that can be provided and make this process easier for them when it seems to be so difficult and challenging more often than not. Yeah, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And like I, I said earlier, it's, it's a different language. Um, it is driven by a law. And sometimes the law is not easy to understand. Um, and then understanding your parental rights and what that looks like and what you can ask for. And so it is um, that educational process. And again, your fear and love. And so it's your baby and you really want the best for your baby. And so it becomes a little tricky. And to have somebody that is not as emotionally invested as you would with your own personal child, not to say that I'm not emotionally invested with my families, but it's very different when it's your own personal child. So to have somebody that can kind of remove some of that quick emotion and walk through the process is super valuable as an educational strategist, is that go in part with the educational therapist role or is that separate? No, I think as an educational therapist, you really need to look at the whole student's experience and supporting the family, right? And so kind of as we said earlier, if as the parent, you're not feeling grounded and you're super worried, that's going to convey over to your kiddo. So helping Mm -hmm. the parent navigate this process, helping them also understand the strategies that you're working with their student on and and getting that grasp really then becomes beneficial. And so like for us, we follow up each session with a student with a lesson note via email so the parents can really see what transpired during each session and then watch Mm -hmm. the trajectory. And it's a nice way for us 
to keep everybody on the same page. And we share that with other professionals um, if a parent would like us to. But we can then take that information and help weave it into um, supports at school. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes there's students at school that are masking and, and appear to be doing quote unquote fine. And then they come yeah. home and it's a different scenario, right? And so thinking about how much energy, time, energy, and effort a student has to put into an assignment or engaging with students at school, that is really important to keep in mind when we're developing supports and requesting and recommending supports for a student. Okay, great. You have something called Special Ed Strategist Community Program? I do. Yeah. So um, it's a really sweet program. It's for parents. Um, I have educators in our community. And so it's just a monthly huddle. We do a Q&A. It's live. Parents will send me questions or questions that I've received from um, professionals. And then we'll do a monthly training about a part of the IEP. We'll take a deeper dive. And then on the call, parents will then ask different questions. They'll ask specific questions to their individual kiddo. And oftentimes I've found through these really rich conversations is that other parents, even though it may be one parent situation, they hear how they can get support and how that works out. And then people start bouncing ideas. So it really becomes this kind of IEP working session, um, which is empowering for families so that they um, have that information. And then I will do, um, they have a private podcast and action Mm -hmm. sheets. So it's just a really fantastic community that if parents or professionals are feeling overwhelmed in the special ed world, we join the special ed strategist and we kind of strategize together and figure out how to um, support our little ones. Exactly. Help them reach their potential, right? That's right. Yeah. So is this program something that's available to anyone remotely? As far as your reach, I know you're in you're in Maryland, and so I know obviously people are there in person. But do you do with people remotely around the country so they could reach you? We do. Yep, we yeah. absolutely do. And so um, our one-on-one support is done either in person or remotely. We have students um, with all over the United States and even outside of the United States. And the same thing with supporting families with special education. Um, when it comes to the law, mainly is within the United States because that's what governs um, special education law here. And so the community is um, all done, you know, either through Zoom or through a different platform. And then the same thing with helping parents and coaching parents as well. I just this morning I was on with a parent in New York, um, coaching them through their next IEP meeting. And so it's a really a great way to kind of cast the wider net and supporting families. Absolutely. And, you know, what you offer is so, so needed and so critical for people. And I can just imagine at this community program, the, the wealth of knowledge that parents can walk away with and the confidence that they can walk away with going into that meeting and feel like on an equal level with administration and school officials, where I know that can be a very intimidating situation. What I want to know also is your staffing. If you have a large staff, could you Maybe talk about that a little bit. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So our team all holds either a master's or a doctorate in special education, state certified as special educators. And so that really had, when I first, again, 18 years ago, started learning essentials, I started to grow um, and brought on my first team member. 
their background was that they had, um, they were working towards their um, doctorate in special education state certified. So it really kind of set the standard for learning essentials in terms of the folks that are on our team have to really know and understand what learning differences are and how they impact our learner. And then equally important, having that background and training to understand the nuances within um, students that have learning challenges. And because of that um, really has helped us. We've uh, won some awards for things that we have done. And so having that, and I always tell parents, when you're looking for support for you or for your family, to understand what the background is of that particular person to make sure that it aligns with the needs that you're trying to get met. So um, making sure that if you're looking for special education intervention to bridge those learning gaps, that that individual has that specific training. So for our students with dyslexia, really understanding um, that they have the certification and the uh, training as an academic language therapist, that they're understanding what um, research-based science of reading looks like and how to um, navigate, again, those nuances within a student and how they learn and approach learning. Are these people all located in Maryland or can or do you hire people around the country that work remotely? Um, yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes and yes. Yes and yes. So I have um, some folks on our team that are local here in Maryland. I have some that are um, in a couple European countries that are actually from Maryland and have took the liberty of COVID and started a new life elsewhere and um, kind of in between. So it makes it for a, a really good way to serve different families. I love it because locations. it's so eclectic, right? You have people coming from all these different experiences and it's just not this one perspective and one model necessarily, yeah. you know, everyone's coming from their own place of knowledge, background. And I think that's really got to be an amazing thing during those team meetings too, because it enriches the information flow of the meeting. And uh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's important, right? Because when we're working with a student one-on-one, -on -one, I think it's also the same with um, a mental health clinician that you're really kind of almost feel isolated. So then to have a greater team to bounce ideas off of and to discuss certain approaches and staying up to date with best practice, it really right. makes it a fantastic way for that cl professional collaboration in that sense and to then better support our families. Yeah, because the way people deal with things in different states and different countries, you know, when it comes to this area, you're not going to have necessarily the same kind of knowledge or background as as they have. And what's new there, you may not be in touch with so they can bring it to the bring it to the table. It's yeah. Really and like cool. I said, I definitely uh, several of my team members during 2020 decided to move elsewhere. And um, so it really is has been a, a good ride for that. This is a question I was going to ask you later, but since you brought up COVID, with a couple of years to reflect upon, the, what's the fallout, if any, do you see that can be directly or indirectly connected to the pandemic? And do you project long-term negative impacts as a result of it? Or do you see that things are starting to come back around? And maybe you can cite some positive developments you've seen as well. So that's a fantastic question, um, for sure. And there's been lots of conversations with professionals, um, part of the, a larger professional group that I belong to. It's called Wiser, and they're um, in the Washington, D.C., Virginia area. And we have 
a lot of conversations about this and, and what that looks like for our students. And we're seeing a lot of impact, right? Because if you think about some of our younger students, when they went to kindergarten, you know, they're learning sounds with a mask on. And so a lot of our students um, maybe missed what that articulation piece looks like because if you're um, and how that goes over to reading. So if you're learning sounds and it's hard to, you know, you have a mask on and then you're trying to produce a sound with a mask on, it's very different than us speaking as we are today where I can look at your mouth structure and be able to parrot that back and then learn from that in terms of putting it into um, language and my academics. Also, from a social and emotional standpoint, we're seeing a lot of students that didn't miss opportunities and gaps. We're seeing students that present a little more immature um, mm -hmm. than we would anticipate a student of a certain age to present. Um, and again, I think it's just from being home and that um, uh, during some critical periods in development, when students didn't have that opportunity to um, navigate a playground or navigate a social situation and how to interact and be. I would say some of the positive parts are um, the, which I know people are going to go, what? The online learning aspect, which did not work well for a lot of families. I do understand that. Um, mm -hmm. But from a individualized approach that we use, it definitely has become convenient for families. So some, it's not for everybody. And I tell that when parents call me, I, you know, I give them the options. And sometimes I say, you know, you know, your kid best. It may not be for them. Um, our students may, will have their materials, their multisensory materials with them, and then they can have shorter sessions over um, multiple days, which mm -hmm. really then helps with that cognitive capacity and lessens that burnout rate um, that some students receive, you know, hit when they're having an hour long session it can be really long for some of our students, even our older students. So this um, gives yeah. us that framework that we can shorten the session. So if we have students, you know, doing half hour sessions, a couple times a week, 45 minutes. So then they're getting what they need and in, um, in the doses that is, is right for them. Mm -hmm. The population that you serve, are they primarily neurodivergent children? Do you deal with children with uh, multiple disabilities, emotional, physical, all types? Do you deal with everyone? We do. Yes. Yeah. So we, we absolutely do. And again, we know if a family calls um, through that conversation, if we're not a good fit for them, I'm always um, happy to share resources. Again, it just shouldn't be that hard um, for a parent. And so if I have a resource of somebody that's not necessarily with us, that would be a better fit. Um, in the end is just good karma and, and helps a parent out. So <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. It comes back to you. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've experienced some people who said that, you know, with their child, I, one particular person thinking um, who was really multiply disabled, some, in some regards, the, the remote helped because there was less distraction um, in the classroom. So, but it really is so individual. I think uh, probably in a broader sense, maybe it, it was, more uh, on the negative tip than in the positive, but there were some positives that did come out of it. And the fact that remote is available and it's something that we all talk about now and consider where we probably never thought about it before. Um, That's right. That's right. Um, but it is nice, to, obviously, to be face to face and sure. um, be in the real world and, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the social component, no matter what, is, you know, even if it's not obvious, it's there, you know, and it's important. That's right. Um, yeah. You are a reading specialist as well. I am. I'm trained 
with the science of reading, Orton Gillingham, several um, research-based approaches. And so again, kind of understanding and navigating what that looks like for a student, right? whether it's how do they produce their sounds? How do they blend? How do they take from learning to read to reading to learn? And then oftentimes what I have found in my experience is that students that are learning to read, however old they are, um, that solid approach really gives them the scope that they need. But then when it comes to reading to learn, and then that written output component is um, really big as well. Understanding, Mm -hmm. you know, citing evidence and understanding what you just read. Um, Some students don't always make that mental um, imagery in their head when they're trying to read. And so having going through that process and kind of teaching them how to uh, visualize what they've read and then to be able to verbalize what they've read and to then um, articulate that in an organized fashion on paper for a, a written response, whether it is through a class assignment or an essay and responding to an exam. Because I think reading can be one of the bigger challenges, right, for kids and for teachers even, and knowing how to actually get through to a child and teach them how to read. Could you give like one example of what you were just talking about? as far as how you might make that visualization possible for them? Right. So there's a lot of hands-on methods you can do. Some of them are kind of hand signals. I know people that are listening can't see, but, you know, um, making sure that a student really understands if for I, and then kind of we like scratch our hand so that then you can give them a nonverbal or being able to hear all the sounds within words to help them with studying. And then we'll create letters, whether it's with Play-Doh or um, wooden shapes, and then creating a tag, so to say, in their brain. So they'll understand this visual mental imagery when it comes to something that they're reading and to then be able to understand nonsense words. Nonsense words aren't real words, but when we can understand how to interact with the sounds and letters and syllables within that word, it can then apply to, you know, maybe a science text or a historical text so that you then are coming across words that you may not know, but you know then how to attack those words. And so um, anything that's multi-sensory, bumpy paper, sand, um, shaving cream, and then we'll have um, students put it on a window. And so then they're writing more on a vertical stance. And so that's Mm -hmm. then improving their um, strength and and core. And that's more of a PTOT thing, but we'll do a little bit of it um, to kind of get that motion of writing as well. And so putting it together and again, really understanding where those gaps are with a student um, when it comes to reading and then teaching them that multisensory approach so that they can then put again, that little tag in their brain so that it becomes automatic and not mm-hmm. labored. And so oftentimes you'll see students with fluency that that rate of reading is impacted because their brain is thinking about individual letters versus a word as a whole. And so having students be able to improve that fluency then can improve their comprehension and then thinking about comprehension, you know, is it again that visualization of what they've read and then to be able to verbalize it Um, and there's some strategies to do that as well. And so thinking of 
the progression of reading for a student and then understanding in that process, what is, where is that breakdown and meeting that student where they are and then moving mm -hmm. them forward. Okay. Getting back to the IAP process, just the evaluation and the ramifications of that process for parents, you know, um, what can you tell parents to help them traverse the potential landmines that they're confronting those that you haven't worked with? Maybe there's some little, uh, a lesson or something, uh, a little tip you can give to people. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will yeah. say, I don't know when this is coming out, but stay tuned. I am having, um, I'm going to be releasing a course, um, with a low price point for this reason. So that parents can again, um, become educated, recognize how to collect that evidence so that you can become um, that informer that's very clear and articulate to the folks at the school and then walking them through that evaluation process. What does that mean? What mm -hmm. types of assessments will take place? And then walking them through eligibility and what does that mean? And interestingly enough, um, I was talking with a colleague yesterday about just podcast ideas and, and helping parents. So it's really kind of timely in terms of Yes, finding um, how to get that IEP going. What does that mean um, for your student? But then also, once you have an IEP, every three years is a process called reevaluation, triennial reevaluation. And parents look at that very differently. And so, helping to educate parents about that data can be really helpful. So sometimes parents are maybe fearful of that reevaluation because what if I lose the IEP? Um, and my response is, did your student all of a sudden lose um, the diagnosis of ADHD or autism or uh, dyslexia or whatever that may be? So it's collecting the data in a way that you can then better understand um, where the baseline is for your student because three years especially when you're talking about little guys from kindergarten, you know, to um, a couple, you know, three years post kindergarten. So eight, yeah. nine years old, there's a lot of growth that takes place. So then understanding that, so then you can then rework your IEP to better support your student, whether that's accommodations within a classroom of what works and what doesn't. Oftentimes I see um, preferential seating, but what does that mean for that student? Sometimes preferential seating in the front isn't the best for a student. Right, it may right. actually be in the back so they can stand up and wiggle and move and not mm -hmm. be a distraction to others. So right. really thinking through for parents of what works best. Um, I always encourage parents that if you're concerned about, again, reading, since we've talked a lot about that, um, take a little video. You know, our smartphones are excellent ways now to give us that. Um, than many moons ago, but take a little video of your student reading. Mark down whether they, um, when they started, when they finished, if they were medicated, if they were not medicated. And again, think about the time, energy, and effort spent at home to complete that school assignment. That is valuable data that you can take to the school to make decisions to better support that student. That's awesome. That's wonderful. When do you expect that to come out so people can look for it? Yes, um, I am hoping to have it come out sometime in January. Okay. And it will be online. You can access it anytime. You'll have, you know, a logon and then you can walk through it. And then there will be opportunities for you if you feel like what you learned and you need a little bit of time with me for some coaching, mm -hmm. that will be available as well. Oh, that's great. They can actually work with you directly. 
Correct. Yes. Because sometimes, again, you know, you want to think about, say, how does this apply to my student? And the school is saying that the student, quote unquote, is doing fine, but they're not doing fine. And so what are some ways to articulate that to the school to be able to do that? Right. I always find it interesting, you know, when we, as teachers, we promise what we're going to do. And as parents, we listen to teachers promise what they're going to do, but it's hard to necessarily know that it's being done. And so to really know best is to be on top of it and to be in touch with the school team as often as possible. I think that it's something that needs to be provided or parents need to understand that it's okay to ask for meetings as often as they want. But even like a once a month kind of check-in, I think is a really important thing um, because we have to be able to know that what the school is promising uh, they're doing and what the IAP states they need to do that is actually being done. Yeah. And part of um, my podcast, I hope families go and look, I do a lot of solo episodes. I do guest episodes and solo episodes. The solo is really focusing on the IEP. So if there's, if you are looking for one particular component that confuses you about the IEP, I am um, pretty positive. I have most of them there um, for you to listen to. And that will hope give you some information and knowledge. I just put one out about the four important parts of an IEP. And so that will walk you through it. And I talk a lot about communication for parents. Um, as well and and how to make it a little bit easier. And you're right. How do I know that if my child is supposed to have 30 minutes pull out service of OT, how do I know that that took place? Mm -hmm. And being able to ask the questions and really have that collaboration with the school team. And I also suggest for parents that are trying to communicate and collaborate with the team to also try to go into the school as much as you can, not as an IEP advocate for a, as a parent, but just, you know, when there's a, an activity at the school or volunteer as much as you can so that the educators and professionals in that building see you as a parent as well as part of the IEP team and really mm -hmm. kind of coming together as much as you can. I get it. It's yeah. not the easiest. Yeah. It's always, you know, sometimes I, folks are thinking, what are you talking about, Wendy? That seems really hard. So just really kind I of chunking it up. Yeah, <laughs> right. when do I have yeah. time? I work yeah. full time. I get it. But just yeah. trying to really make this a human thing. Because I a lot of times, Mark, in IEP meetings, it becomes, I get it, it's, it is a legal document. There are protocols and timelines that we need to follow that your goals need to be SMART goals. I get all of that. But also you're talking about somebody's baby. And so really trying to humanize that process and finding that balance. I did, I recorded with some guests, they wrote a really great book and they talk about the third voice at the IEP table, right? And so that you have your parent voice, you have the, the team voice and then coming together with the third voice. So we're not always gonna get everything but really coming together with that child in mind and what we can do to better support that student. And so mm -hmm. back to the parents and educating them in terms of collecting that evidence and knowing your kid what works best um, in terms of what their needs are when it comes to that processing memory and attention coming to, um, you know, social, emotional communication, whatever that may be. And what are some best ways that you've seen from a parent heart and a parent stance, work really well with your kids. It doesn't always translate because school is a different environment, but at least it starts a conversation of what's working well and what can we do? What could that look like in a school building? It also lets the, 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 the teachers and the administrators know that you're involved. And so it kind of keeps them on their toes a little bit too, which is important. <laughs>
Yeah. And, you know, our teachers are overwhelmed. They really Absolutely. are. And, you know, and you kind of asked about people on my team and stuff. And I've, the folks that have been on my team have been there for years and they're just so valuable to me and to the services they provide. But I'm finding there is more of a need and um, for support for our students. And I'm also finding that educators are feeling overwhelmed. We have mm -hmm. a special education shortage that is yeah. happening. Um, even in the best districts, the federal law has done some quick looks at how things are done and are realizing that even in the best districts, things aren't aligning the way they are supposed to in the world of special education. Um, there's a substitute shortage. And so mm -hmm. teachers are truly doing their best. And so I would say the best support is to find ways that it can be seamlessly integrated for that school, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think coming from Yes, I've been in the classroom. I've been a mom. And what can we do creatively to support that educator that's delivering a service and in a way that's really going to also support the student? Right. Yeah, please don't get me wrong. I'm very pro-teacher. Um, I know that they're overworked. I know that they're underpaid. I know all those things, um, having been one. And I think teachers are heroes. And literally, they put their lives on the line every day. And so no no casting aspersions upon teachers i think they're amazing and don't get enough recognition and, they don't um, and it's also hard talking back to that balance is that there's families that if they come in for a meeting they then may not be able to buy milk or bread or some necessities for that week so kind of really understanding where the parents coming from as well so that it's very nuanced it's nuanced right in it terms is. of you know Really what is. the family situation is, what the teacher situation is, the support mm -hmm. that they're getting. And so just kind of thinking through all of that and helping navigate that process and communication for families. And I've also done it for teachers. And, yeah, and yeah. that really then, in the end, our ultimate goal is supporting that student. Yeah. No, I appreciate having had this, this part of the conversation for sure. Can you tell people the name of your podcast? Because I wanted to ask about it. And now you've answered the question so well uh just need the name of it so people can find thank you, you. it's called the special ed strategist um where we strategize all things special ed and helping families um figure out how to again bridge those learning gaps and access special education services and you can find it wherever you consume your podcast wonderful and so where can people find you how can they reach you uh for yes yeah. Our website, learningessentialsedu.com, Instagram at Learning Essentials, and then you can also find me, Wendy Taylor, on LinkedIn. This has been such a pleasure, Wendy. I really appreciate your time. It's so I fun. talk to you for another hour easily. Um, just going back and forth, it's just been so relaxing and educational and informative and uh, really, really appreciate all you've done in your career and what you continue to bring to people. So. Thanks Kudos for having me, Mark. <laughs> it's my pleasure. My pleasure. And I hope to speak to you again in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. I want to thank you for listening today, and I hope you'll join me for each episode to hear about topics new to you or close to your heart. I hope this podcast might inspire you to face your days more confidently, stirring a greater sense of self-love, mindfulness, and outpouring of goodness and positive role modeling for your children, while remembering to attend to the areas of your own mental, physical, 
and if you're inclined, spiritual health, enabling you to be all you hope to be for them. All music heard on today's show comes from Jason Shaw at audionautics.com. Remember to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Special Ed Rising, and on my website, specialedrising.com. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts, and tell your friends. You can connect with me directly with questions, comments, or if you're interested in parent coaching, through my email, specialedrising at gmail.com, or my contact pages on Facebook or my website. Also, let me know if there's anything you'd like to learn more about, and until next time, peace and keep rising. (music) 